Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Today, we're going to be talking about a little bit about that special counsel report that came out about Biden and the mishandling of documents. We're going to talk about Israel rejecting the peace offer from Hamas. And we'll be talking about the big Tucker Carlson interview with Russian President Vladimir Putin. All that and more coming up. So let's get into the rapid fire news. Uh, rumor has it, rumor has it, that Zaluzhny and a number of other top officials in the Ukrainian high command have been sacked by Zelensky. Now, at first, uh, Zaluzhny refused to go when he was told that he had to leave. Uh, he refused to leave. Uh, which doesn't bode well for the idea that you, you know Ukraine is a, a free and liberal democracy when the commander in chief uh, refuses to step down, you know, a military leader refusing to abide by the orders of a civilian leader. But in the end, he's relented. So, which that leads me to believe that that was more of a political move, the whole saying no. Because what that has done is it has given Zaluzhny an off ramp. Because now, by saying no, uh, I'm I'm staying to man my post, and then being it's a, essentially forcing Zelensky to force the issue again. Now it's not oh Zelensky asked and I just left because I uh, Zeluzhny was a traitor Zeluzhny he's the problem. Now it's I tried to stay I tried to warn him that no one else was qualified for the job if if only I was still there we might have won the war. But now that Zeluzhny is out of the picture, and he forced Zelensky to force him out of the picture, he forced Zelensky's hand in that way, Zeluzhny has found his off-ramp. So now, right before the collapse, mere months before the collapse of Ukraine and the, the front line in Ukraine, Zeluzhny has been given the perfect out of this, this mess that has formed in Ukraine. So now he can... He can step down, he can do all the, all the, you know, all the ceremonial things, all the, the steps and the poses and the frames. He can do all that. And then he can walk away. He can go through all the motions. That's what I was trying to say before. He can go through all the motions and, <laughs> and then he can retire to his mansion somewhere in the Swiss Alps or Hawaii or Italy. Hell. The sky's the limit now. He is no longer in charge in Ukraine, meaning he doesn't have to stay anymore. And it's not treason to leave anymore. He can just go. Zaluzhny's out. Zelensky is a not so lucky. Not so lucky. Zelensky looks like he'll be going down with the ship. A ship that is um, already taking on water, you know. The band is still playing. You know, the band is still playing, so... At least it sounds nice, uh, but the ship is taking on water, and the Russians are coming. That big, big offensive, the backbreaker offensive, is coming. And Zeluzhny will not be there when it hits, but Zelensky will, and Zelensky will therefore take all the blame. This is a political move, not just the removal of Zeluzhny, because there was a, a bit of a power struggle going on between Zelensky and Zeluzhny for at least half of the war, from what I've been able to gather. 
I mean, we, we talk about it briefly, and I talked about it more towards, like, towards the end of last year, when I sort of came to the realization that all, uh, I said the end of last year, uh, I meant the end of 2022, my mistake, I forget we're in 2024 now, but I talked about it a little bit towards the end of 2022, when I, I realized that all these reports about a power struggle and, Z and Zelensky losing his mind, when I realized that that wasn't hyperbole and that there was merit to both of those reports, I'm like, oh, shoot, this guy is kind of losing it. And there is a power struggle and people are just dying under incredibly um, suspicious circumstances. The one of I say one of the latest, although this was months ago, but one of the more prominent, if you will, examples of this being a dude uh, exploding from a grenade and the story being that he. He didn't know that the that the pin had been pulled. These military guys didn't know that the pin had been pulled, and now he's dead. It's like, um, okay, you know, and just wake up with a grenade in your in your front yard. It's like, okay, it's, I it happens it happens to the best of us guys, but the power struggle seems to have reached a, a critical point where now the Zelensky faction had gained enough strength to finally push Zeluzhny out. Now, the corruption is still rampant in the Ukrainian government. It's just now there's a, a different faction that has secured... Well, not a different faction, but the, Z the Zelensky faction has now secured a sort of supremacy now. And they will bear 100% of the blame as this ship goes down. But I thought that was very peculiar and very interesting. Another peculiar and interesting thing we've saw, we've seen over the course of last week, was the Nevada primary, the non-binding primary where Trump wasn't even on the ballot. But <laughs> but you had Nikki Haley, and a lot of the other Republican candidates, most of whom have already dropped out, mind you. They were on the ballot, and you know there was an option that says none of these candidates and in an <laughs> in a comical twist because it's not ironic and it's not surprising but in a comical twist Nikki Haley lost to literally none of these candidates <laughs> 31 to 63 <laughs> even with so she's losing even without Trump's name on the ballot that's insulting. And you know what? That's well-earned, right? It's well-earned and well-deserved. Because, and again, I really don't have anything against this lady as on like a personal level. I just really don't like the, the, the length and the effort that the propaganda press has gone through to try to make this Nikki Haley thing happen. It's like, eh, hey, you, can, you can shut the fuck up now. <laughs> and that's exactly what the voters told them. Uh, in, in Nevada. So now we wait. Uh, is it tomorrow? Cause I know that I noticed that every week these things happen. You know? I, I'm not that well versed in the timing of the politics. I know I know about Super Tuesday in March, but I am still f relatively fresh to this whole primary and caucuses thing. So I, I think the South Carolina, you know, caucus primary is happening tomorrow. Uh, if it does, we're definitely going to talk about it. Uh, those results are going to be juicy because South Carolina is Nikki Haley's home state. So if it happens this week or whenever it does happen, we're gonna, we're definitely going to cover that. I'm pretty sure South Carolina's up next. Pretty sure they are. But alas, that is going to be very juicy to watch her lose in her home state 
and then she'll have either have no choice but to concede or she'll stick around for whatever reason and you know just be a, a permanent invalid in the political sense because you you don't lose in your home state and come back from that but i'll digress uh <laughs> losing to nobody that that your career is over you've lost to literally nobody it doesn't it doesn't get worse than that it's you didn't even lose to a candidate right you lost to literally no one because no one was deemed a better option by s twice the number of people that deemed you as, as a worthy option 30 to 63 so twice as many people said nobody as said nikki healy which is insane and well deserved but that's that uh another story we have is iraq and all this retaliation uh, we talked briefly last week about um, that drone strike that hit uh, our troops in Jordan, which brought to the attention to the to the entire country's attention the fact that we even had troops in Jordan, which is a, a a peculiarity of our time. You know, all these people who keep saying we have interests everywhere, and all of a sudden the American public are presented with the fact that we have troops in places that no one knew we had troops in. But but hey, we have interest there. We we can't name or find them on a map, but we. We have interest over there. Yeah, sure, buddy. But yeah, after three of our soldiers and like 63 others, three died and then 63 others were wounded. And there, there was a militia that claimed responsibility for this. I said, well, we'll, we'll say that they are, but you know, it sounds a little bit like ISIS because you know, ISIS loves taking credit for things that they, that they just probably didn't do. So I took it with a grain of salt. But we talked about that militia. And I, I use that as a sort of stepping stone to talk about how Iran does not control all these proxies. You know, there's this obsession in their press, and I, I keep bringing it up how they're the proxies, Iranian proxies. Uh, they're trying to instigate a war with Iran, which is why it's in, I feel it important to expose the means by which we are being propagandized. And it's by constantly repeating this uh, line of Iranian proxies so that you associate every attack with Iran instead of with the people who actually commit the, the, the atrocity. And sometimes that there is a, a valid uh, case to be made that why would you focus on the proxy when you could focus on the country behind it? But understand what what made that this instance so peculiar and so comical. At this point, it's comical. It's a tragedy, but it's comical. It's a tragedy because people are dying that don't need to die, and it's comical because of how goofy this is. Because as our propaganda press was saying that these people are Iranian proxies and they're doing the bidding of Iran, these guys, immediately after the attack, come out, claim responsibility for the attack, and then out their own mouth say that our, uh, our partners and our allies in the Axis, uh, he's talking about the Axis of Resistance, and then he name drops Iran specifically, calls them by their whole government, the Islamic Republic of Iran. He goes, they disagree with our methods and <laughs> repeatedly encourage us not to pursue it, our escalations against the United States. And it's like, well, okay. So they're the Iranian proxy, but they're just blatantly defying what their, their, what their, their puppet master is telling them. So to what degree can we attribute uh, responsibility to Iran for the actions of people who are overtly disobeying Iran's wishes like but that is not a concern 
The goal is a war with Iran. So we're not going to look at that. Unless you're coming to this podcast, in which case we will look at that. Because we don't need or want a war with Iran. There's literally no reason for us to do that. But I digress. But now we have this, this news story, uh, which is directly linked to that, where the leader of the Kataib Hezbollah, that's the name of the militia that claimed responsibility for the attack in Jordan, the leader of the Katib Hela, well, a leader, not the leader, a leader of this uh, Hezbollah, this branch of Hezbollah in Iraq, he and two of his guards uh, were in a vehicle when it was targeted in the east of the, uh, targeted east of the Iraqi capital. Uh, so in eastern Baghdad, because that's what we're talking about here. Uh, I was just worded a bit weirdly. Uh, so him and two of his guards were killed in a drone strike. Uh, oh, and, and another peculiar fact about this, because uh, I just brought up Iraq, and it reminded me of the other fact of the story, which made it even goofier, was that <laughs> these guys said that they were going to re- refrain from further attacks on America to avoid embarrassing the Iraqi government. I'm like, okay. <laughs> it It's it's comical. A, a comical tragedy is what it is. Because those soldiers didn't need to die. And that's uh, the the frustrating thing about it. And, and hearing all these people, particularly in our government, talk about how we need to be over there. We need to do this and we need to do that to Iran. And, and you see the consequences of these policies, especially when it blows up in our face like it did in Jordan. And in the case of our soldiers, literally, it literally blows up in their face and they die. They did not need to die. But because people in our country have this obsession with being involved in, on the other side of the planet, in affairs that have nothing to do with us, our soldiers pay a price that they never should have been asked to pay. It's one thing to ask your soldiers to fight and potentially risk their life and die for their country. But what were those soldiers risking their life for? What did they die for? What are they going to be remembered for? Like, it's it's so frustrating. And thank goodness that I don't have family member that fucking died to this bullshit because that's what it is it's just some straight bullshit but we just keep going on we're we're getting bombed in iraq and syria but our congress votes twice against pulling troops out of syria and now all of a sudden we're, we're so concerned about the troops because they're being attacked shut up shut up it's oh i can't stand these people but I, I, I'll digress and go. Uh, the Pentagon said that the, the commander was responsible for directing attacks on American forces in the region, which, to be fair, is something that the militia has uh, admitted to, uh, if we take them at their at their word. And yeah, it's so, ret- so stupid, so stupid. Just losing perfectly good lives for no reason. In a war that they were never going to win. In a country that they should never have been in. And they just get bombed because. And and, and then and then there's the, the, the thing about the alliance. Because our soldiers in Jordan wouldn't have been bombed. If we weren't in uh, this alliance. This, this death pact with Israel. Look at, the, look at the Russian ships and the Chinese ships just sailing by in the Red Sea. Meanwhile, we're firing missiles like we're going to do something. And the Houthi blockade is still up. You have, you have Britain over there acting like they're still a great power. So they can feel important. 
And as a matter of fact, this blockade's gone on for months now. It, it's gone on for well over a month. And not a single thing has happened to stop it. We're, we're, we're coming up on the, the two-month mark of this blockade. Of, and the two-month mark of our response to that blockade. And nothing has been done to stop it. But supposedly the American Navy is keeping open the sea lanes. Well, how can you say that if you can't fight bandits in a desert? Uh, and and it always, that's what it always comes down to, isn't it? All, that's what it always comes down to, isn't it? We're the, we're the strongest nation in the world, but bandits in a desert are a threat to us. Armed with a, a Kalashnikov and a Quran, and in the case of the Houthis, drones. That's all it takes? That's all it takes? Uh, it's This whole crisis could have been averted if the dog wagged the tail. Because we don't. We don't need a war in the Middle East. The Middle East doesn't need a war in the Middle East. And none of them wanted it. But our refusal to put Israel in its place, to tell the Israelis what their position is going to be, and instead allowing them uh, in the, on the issue of Gaza and the Ukrainians on the issue of the war over there, allowing these dependents, allowing the tails to wag the dog that is the United States, we end up in... Incredibly dumb situations where a conflict that could have been forcibly ended ages ago by us simply turning off the tap of money and weapons to these countries and forcing them to come to some sort of agreement with their neighbors. Instead of allowing that, we allow permanent war and a permanent drain on our own financial resources. It's all for money laundering, of course, but these conflicts didn't, one, didn't need to start. And in the case of Gaza, don't need to continue, but we allow it because we do not put the dependents in their place. We let the dependents run the show. That's not how this is supposed to go. If we pay you, we decide how this goes. It's not the other way around. But the Israel lobby is strong in this country. And I suppose the neo-Nazi lobby is strong as well. Huh. What, a, what, a, what a peculiar time we live in. People are going to look back on this and they're going to go, wow. These people were insane. <laughs> but that's, that's the, the rapid fire. And we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. All right, so let's talk about this special counsel report. We're only going to talk about a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about it because uh, it was a very big report. So we're going to go over the. We're going to largely be covering an article the Washington Post did on it, and we're going to talk uh, a little bit of the other facts around it. And, you know, sort of try to summarize what we got here, and then. We'll, yeah, but yeah, let's uh, let's let's dive into this, right? So a special counsel report. Uh, well, a report from the special counsel investigation on Biden's mishandling of classified documents was released. And, you know, if there was ever a way to murder a man's political campaign, 
in an instant. This would be it. <laughs> this would, this would be it. <laughs> it's it, like this guy's been been, been sliding. It, it's it's almost like watching it's almost like watching Cars three. Uh, you know that scene when when McQueen is McQueen is fading, fading fast. You know you know that. Uh, for those of you who even who watch Cars three, I know I'm I'm addicted to that movie. I'm just it's it's an unhealthy addiction. All right, it's unhealthy, but I don't care. I'm <laughs> I. I have a car's addiction. But alas, this guy's been slipping and falling uh, in the polls and literally. Um, unfortunately, literally. Uh, that's, you know, uh, just saying that out loud has r- reminded me that it's literal. So I have to, I have to clarify. Um, but wow. This thing came out and it just, it, 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 it raped him. It raped him, politically speaking. It, it raped him. Like, if this was not a free society, I'm quite certain this special counsel would be assassinated. And and who's to say he still won't be? You know, with people like the, like the CIA running around. But, like, my goodness. We're going to dive into a little bit of this. Because the Washington Post, again, had an article about this special report. And they, they were trying to paint it as, oh, oh it, it wasn't that bad for Biden. So understand that that's the context, that's, that's the framing for what we're, what we're reading here as we dive through these statements. Because the statements speak for themselves regardless of what the Washington Post wanted to say about it. So uh, that's the framing, and I'll just put that out there as, as a little sort of a integrity here. They wanted to frame it that way. So I'm going to frame it my way. So... You can believe which framing and which narrative you want, or you can believe none and just come to your own conclusions, which is the healthy thing to do. But alas, here's some of what this article had to say. Uh, It goes, quote, The report says jurors could decide that Biden did not willfully retain documents related to Afghanistan and national defense information found at his home. It also says evidence suggests He did not willfully retain documents found at the University of Delaware uh, and that he did not willfully disclose classified information to someone not authorized to receive it. In many cases, the special counsel decided that the documents were mishandled by mistake or were not especially important anymore, despite the classification level, end quote. So that that was sort of the the first... uh, you know, piece of, uh, the sort, ugh, the first piece of, you know, juicy material that I sunk my teeth into, because I, I, I dug in a little bit, so that I'm not starting from the beginning of the article, this is down a little bit, but that's how they start, and again, they, they want to frame this as, oh, the, the special counsel report wasn't that bad for Biden, here's what it really says, it, see, it, it's okay for Biden, he can't be, he, he's not gonna be convicted, he, he's not a criminal, he didn't break the law, you know, that's, that's where they're coming from, uh, and actually, I'm actually happy that that's the, the first thing I read to you. Because as we go on, uh, it, it doesn't go that well from the further we go into this. Um, but that's just the starting point here, right? Because Biden, it, it, the, the article talks about how Biden had his, his, ho- his notebook. He had this little notebook. He would always write down notes and information from uh, important meetings, whether that's uh, with... Uh, security clearance meetings uh 
you know, security briefings, uh, talks with the president, talks with other high-level officials in the U.S. government and high-level officials in other uh, other people's governments, you know, around the world. And a lot of things were discussed in these meetings, obviously. Lots of classified things, like security uh, policy, like how we were going to run the war in Afghanistan, and this is one of the, one of the key things that they were just talking about. Um, lots of information that isn't supposed to be, you know, just willy-nilly handed out to randoms, so to speak, which was ultimately handed out to a literal random. Be and, and let's let's dive into that. So Biden wrote down information from his meetings in the notebook. This notebook is very important because uh, the information in it was often classified. He then uses notes from his his numerous notebooks because he had a lot of these notebooks. All right, it was one just one. When he had he uses notes from these notebooks when he had a ghostwriter help him write his book Promise Me Dad. Promise Me Dad. That's, so that's the name of the book he wrote. And he had a ghostwriter helping him write the book. And he used a lot of these notes in the process of writing the book. So this is at least, so this is one person. This is the, just the start here. This is the tip of the iceberg. This guy, what's his name? Uh, Mr. Zwanitzer. Mr. Zwanitzer. Uh, is the ghostwriter. That, that's the name of the ghostwriter here. Now, the article goes on to say that, quote, the report says that Biden could credibly claim he thought his notebooks were his personal property and that he was allowed to take them home after his vice presidency. As a result, the report said, we do not believe there are viable criminal charges against Mr. Biden for willfully retaining classified information in the notebooks. End quote. <laughs> so right off the bat, no. <laughs> right off the bat, uh, sure, that's what the special counsel says. But the special counsel is uh, blatantly wrong. And it's, it's incredibly so. Because first, because remember it said, what did it say up here? He did not willfully retain documents related to Afghanistan and national defense information uh, found at his home. He did. He didn't will. He did not willfully retain these documents, even though he literally went out of his way to retain these documents and keep them at his house. He went out of his way to retain documents and move them around in his document and in, in his garage here in my garage with my classified documents here you know I just read a book of classified documents a day <laughs> that's his guy he literally goes out of his way to retain classified documents and the, the council reports yeah he did not willfully retain documents related to Afghanistan national defense information found, which was found at his home at his home it's what are we talking about it, it also <laughs> and he he did not willfully disclose classified information to someone not authorized to receive it. Or again, this is that that first quote that I read to you in this little segment. He did not willfully disclose classified information to someone not authorized to receive it. Let's uh, fast forward to uh, Mr. Zwanitzer, the ghostwriter, where he allowed the ghostwriter to look at these notes uh, in in these notebooks that had classified information in it. 
Oops. That is literally disclosing classified information to someone not authorized to receive it. Now, we can go back back and forth all day about how much of this information even deserves to be classified. We, we can do that, right? I'm, I'm not saying that the, a lot of this needed to be classified, but a lot of it did need to be classified, probably, right? Because as, for as much as we appreciate and deserve transparency in our country, some things do have to be kept secret. You're like you don't need to tell if you're at war, like for for better or worse, however stupid and retarded the war might be, it's not a good idea to tell the other side what you're up to in that war. It's not a good idea to just be leaking information about that, right? But for what is classified, this guy literally disclosed classified information to a random, to a random, a ghost writer, literally a random. And and this, the council is saying, yeah, he he didn't willfully do it, even though he literally handed him these these notebooks with all this classified information in it. It's because of, of course not all the information in the notebooks is classified, but if you're writing down notes from classified briefings, like come on now, come on now, and, and we're supposed to believe, oh, he didn't willfully do it. Sure, you can believe that. I won't. <laughs> but th- this is this is goofy. This is unbelievably goofy. This. But let, let, let's uh, continue going through this. Cause we, we we're we're diving into Mr. Zwanitzer now, Mr. Zvranitzer. Cause he. I just can't get over the fact that they just straight up lied. Just straight up lied. And then as you go deeper into the article. Every lie that they said in that initial quote is just exposed for the lie that it is. He could he could credibly claim that he thought the notebooks were his personal property. Well, sure. He could claim that, and the notebooks technically are his personal property. The problem isn't that the notebooks are his personal property. The problem is that he wrote down classified information in personal property. If I took a USB... Well, no, if, if, I, if I had my phone with me during a classified briefing and I hit record while I'm in the briefing and then I take that recording and put it onto a USB drive, that's the, my phone and the USB are my personal property. If I put plug the USB into my, my PC and I, I, I upload it onto my PC and now it's in a folder, well, yeah, it's all my personal property. I'm still a fucking criminal. <laughs> I'm still a fucking criminal. The... <laughs> This is this is so goofy. The backflips, the gymnastics, to defend the indefensible, the lies, the gaslighting. Oh my goodness. <laughs> he, <laughs> I can't, I can't take these people seriously. I can't take these people. I take them seriously in that they want me want to get us into a war, but I just, I, they're not serious people. They're not serious people. Oh, it's his personal property. It just happens to have classified information on it, and we're not gonna we're not gonna punish him for it. Like, yeah, yeah, no clearance, and you and you handed this information out to a random so you could write a book. Okay, okay. Did did, did Mr. Zvanitzer sign an affidavit saying he wouldn't disclose this information? No. Oops. Did he sign an NDA? No. Okay. I said an affidavit. Why? 
I'm at the NDA. I try. I tried. I tried to. You know. You, you heard me. You hear me try to correct that at the end. Yeah. You know. <laughs> but the the report says that there is evidence that Biden, on three occasions, may have disclosed classified information to Mr. Zvanitsa, who did not have clearance. So again, this is the article literally going out of its way to tell us that the guy Biden gave this classified information to by sharing his notebook with Mrs. Von Eitzer, he gave this to a random who did not have clearance. But, the report says, quote, we do not believe the evidence supports chain uh, charges of willful disclosure beyond a reasonable doubt. End quote. And they say that that's because Biden, while speaking to Zvanitzer, indicated uncertainty about whether the passages in his notebook that he was reading were classified. And as a result, quote, we conclude that the evidence does not establish that Mr. Biden willfully disclosed national defense information to Mr. Zvanitzer, end quote. So that's a lot of bullshit, but uh, let's recap, let's recap. Well, let's, let's just take a step back, why don't we? Let's take a step back and look at this. Biden wrote down during important meetings notes about these meetings into his notebooks during his time as the vice president. Meetings that were in classified briefings, oftentimes, with classified information being disclosed during these briefings and meetings, oftentimes, a lot of the time that he was doing this. Lots of classified information that was written down and sort of transcribed onto this notebook for his later consumption, which was fine while he was the vice president. But it's not fine when he was a, a private citizen, which he was at the time that he was uh, working with Mr. Zvanitzer to write his book, Promise Me Dad. So, to summarize, he wrote down notes during important meetings, classified information into these notebooks, and then he took the notebooks when he was no longer the vice president, which is itself a crime because you don't have the authority to do that. And then he allowed someone without security clearance, Mr. Zonitzer, to see his notes while writing the book, Promise Me Dad. Meaning Mr. Zonitzer, a literal random without security clearance, saw classified information in these notebooks while Biden was a, a private citizen and didn't have the right to have this classified information anymore. Classified documents. Because that is documentation. But, because Biden wasn't sure if it was classified or not, the special counsel concludes that Biden did not willfully disclose classified information to someone without proper security clearance, even though he literally allowed someone without proper security clearance to see classified information. <coughs> so, so, let, so, so let's take one more step back before we go forward again and understand that this decision was not reached because classified information was not shared. Because it was, it, it blatantly was. 
This conclusion was reached instead because Biden was unsure if the information was classified or not. So it's okay that he, he just made a mistake, guys. Okay, it's okay. He didn't know if it was classified or not. He thought it was his personal property. And there he, he doesn't need to be punished for a crime because it was just an honest-to-God mistake. Now, let's put ourselves in Biden's place for just a second and ask, would we be given the same courtesy and benefit of the doubt as he would we also be allowed to avoid jail time in the slammer just because we were negligent of whether the information we gave to a random was classified or not? And the answer to that is an, <laughs> is an obvious no. We're getting locked the fuck up is what's going to happen to us. But he gets to walk because it was just an honest mistake. He just didn't know it was classified, guys. Come on, guys. Come on, man. <laughs> Boy, if this doesn't tell you our Justice Department is a fucking joke, I don't know what will. Now, the report also talked about uh, classified documents that were held at his home in Delaware and the, the classified documents that were transferred to the University of Pennsylvania and how people without security clearance were able to look in and see these documents uh, and uh, staffers and, and people who were moving the... the staffers and more staffers and all these other staffers who just kept getting their eyes who just kept getting their eyes on classified documents oh my god it's it's almost as if they weren't stored properly but just they just kept they just kept looking at all these classified documents oh my god no <laughs> and and then there was and then, uh, and then there was the 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 press conference that came after the these documents dropped after all this information dropped. <laughs> and they lit that man up. Like, I don't think I've ever seen the propaganda press do their job like I saw them before. <laughs> but it's... Uh, they, they were just... They laid into that guy. They ate him alive. They, they were trying... Well, sir... What about your cognitive capabilities? What about your cognitive functions? Sir, when you began your, your presidency, you told the American people, when, when people ask you about your cognitive function and if you were still capable of doing the job, you said, watch me. A, a lot of Americans are watching and, and they think that you, and then, <laughs> and they think you're not mentally fit for the job. You've, and, and then there was the, another one that said, you said that, well, actually, I think it was the same one. She's like, you said that anybody could beat Donald Trump, so why does it have to be you? And he's like, well, because I'm the mo most qualified to fit to do it. I'm the one most qualified to do it. Don't you know that I have to finish the job that I started? <laughs> and for the first time ever, these people did their job, and they, they didn't just uh, take that. They didn't, they, they had at him, and they... And they all just bombarded him with questions about his mental acuity, which are about five years too late, you know, you know, but better late than never, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, they, they, they're they actually, they were actually asking questions. It wasn't that, that same guy who always just lays into these people during a press conference that, that one, what was his name? Ducey, who, who's always just eating, 
just eating the press secretary alive and then by Biden by asking straight up questions. And, and you know, it, it was it was another reporter. And it was, I'm like, wow. There, it's over. The Biden fever dream is over. The fact that they're even asking about his mental acuity, it says it all. Because they, they pretended it wasn't there before. When he slipped and fell up the stairs, that, that wasn't a problem before, remember? He was, a, he was a picture of health, didn't you? He's riding bikes. He's, he's going to the gym. He's on the beach. Uh, don't look at the fact that he fell off the bike. Don't look at the fact that he's on the beach and has no comment when Maui... When Maui's burning down, don't look at the fact that he's giving money to Ukraine while, you know, East Palestine is uh, dealing with uh, its uh, a small-scale Chernobyl. Don't look at that, don't look at that, don't look at that. No. He's a picture of health, okay? He's not falling up the stairs. The stairs are falling down. <laughs> the stairs are moving too fast to get out from underneath him. He... But now... All of a sudden, the, the taboo, the, the, the unspeakable truth, which is that this guy was in mental decline, is now speakable. For the bots. Because that, that's what they are. The propaganda. They're bots. They, they've, been, they've been updated, so to speak. They got their, their software update. And now criticizing this guy for his mental decline is on the table. As it should have been five years ago. Uh, and yes, I'm talking about the campaign trail, not just the 2020 election year. <clears throat> this is long overdue, long overdue. Better late than never. But I'm just like, wow, they're they're doing this now. We're about to select the nominee for these presidential candidates in what a month from now, and they're doing this now. Oh no. And, and and then, of course, because I knew it was going to happen, you know, I knew it was going to happen. But it seems as though the knives are out. And the moment that Trump warned us about all those years ago has finally come. The buildup to the 25th Amendment has begun. And now we just have to wait for the specifics. Biden's, it's over. Biden is over. Now we see who replaces him and how exactly they replace him. We'll see how they, they uh, slip one in, so to speak. But alas, that's a, a wait and see, but we're definitely going to see. Cause we won't have to wait too much longer. Super Tuesday ain't that far away. So we'll, we'll see how these conventions go. Obviously, Trump's going to be the nominee and the Republicans. And Biden is probably going to be the nominee for the Democrats, but we'll see if they do anything uh, funny when he becomes the nominee. We we live in interesting times, for better or for worse. So there's that. But now we're gonna talk about Israel rejecting peace. We're gonna talk very briefly about this. Uh, the peace plan that was proposed by Hamas, this three-phase peace plan. Uh, so. In phase one, and we're going to talk about the, the phases, because this is a, a new proposal. There, there was another opportunity for peace in Gaza that was sort of passed up on. 
But now we have this, and I think that it's worth bringing up. It's, it's always worth bringing up peace in Gaza as an option, so that, you know, we're reminded that it is an option. And that these savage barbarians uh, aren't all that savage or barbarian. Uh, you're just fighting a war. <laughs> uh, people, people love to forget Israel was fighting a war with these people for the entirety of their existence. You know, but alas, we, we've gone over how the war did not start on October the 7th. Uh, and October the 7th has actually, the, the more you look at it and the farther away from it we get, the more we're able to look at it with some clarity. And you see that Hamas actually killed fewer civilians. The ratio of military to civilian deaths that was inflicted by Hamas on October the 7th was significantly better than the ratio that Israel is achieving throughout the entirety of its response. So, to call October the 7th barbaric, uh, if you're going to call October the 7th barbaric, then you have to understand that is, if that's barbaric, then by comparison it is civilized. To what compared to what Israel's doing in Gaza now, where they're they're not even trying to hit Hamas, they're just killing civilians at, almost at random, which is why the death tally in Gaza, when you break it down from adult by adult men, adult women, and by children, it roughly parallels the demographic makeup of Gaza as a whole, which can only be possible if you're not even trying to target the adult men specifically Hamas, but if you're just bombing people at random. I'll digress. There's been a peace proposal put forth by Hamas, who, uh, and they've they've laid this out, this peace plan, this three-phase peace plan. Now, in phase one, there'd be a ceasefire lasting 45 days, where all Israeli women and men under under the age of 19, men under the age of 19, all Israeli women, and all the men under 19 along with the elderly and the sick, would be released from captivity, from Hamas captivity, in exchange for all Palestinian women, elderly, sick, and men under 19. You know, keep the fighting age men there, and that'll be worked out later on. <clears throat> so that's phase one. Pretty solid first phase. Phase two would also see the beginnings uh, well, no, phase one would also see the beginnings of an Israeli withdrawal from Gaza, starting with the more populated areas of Gaza, and then the rebuilding of hospitals and refugee camps would be allowed to begin, uh, as aid would also be allowed to come back into the country. Phase two would see the extension of the ceasefire by another 45 days, uh, the release of all hostages, so that would include the, the, the fighting age men and other captives held by both sides and a total withdrawal of Israeli forces from the Gaza Strip and that's phase two well again an, an extension a 45-day extension to the 45-day ceasefire and then the third phase with uh, aside from a 45 another 45-day extension to the ceasefire a final 45 days um the third phase is more ceremonial than the, the first two phases as the dead and the remains of the dead 
our wood would be exchanged this time in instead of people. Um, well, the living, I suppose. So this would be a more ceremonial and honorary phase where you honor the dead and you respect the dead by allowing the fallen to return to their families so their families can bury them. Uh, the dead and the remains of the dead, you know. Now, notice, notice, because this is important, a cessation of hostilities was not included in this proposed arrangement. Not, not included. So, we can take that a number of different ways. Maybe this was Hamas offering a deal, you know, that would that would have been potentially acceptable for Israel to agree to. We could take it that way. Or, conversely, we could go the other way and go, look, they don't actually want peace. They, just, they, they, want a, uh, they don't want a cessation of hostilities. They just want a moment to rest and, get, and gather their forces so they can attack again. We could, we could say that. And it might be true, right? It might be true. But either way we take it, however we take it, this will have, in my view, the impact of adding to the list of peace proposals that Israel has rejected. We're adding to the list. And that's going to have diplomatic consequences later on, because remember, in the background of all this, you have South Africa with the genocide trial, and for every peace that the Israelis say no to, that's just going to be one more, uh, you know, straw on the camel's back in the, the jury of public opinion, which is going on in the UN right now. Every time they say no to a peace deal, that gives validation to the case that South Africa is making. Well, oh my God, the Israelis, they, they keep getting peace offerings from the, other, from the Palestinians and they just keep saying no. And they just keep, and, and just keep killing all these civilians. They refuse to make peace so they can kill more civilians. Oh my God, may, maybe they are committing genocide. All that's happening in the background right now. Right, all that is happening right now in the background, and Israel is doing themselves no favor by refusing this peace. Now, it, it could be that, you know, Hamas is uh, they they really are just doing this to buy themselves some time and regroup and get their forces together so they can attack again, or perhaps maybe it's uh, again going back to that first idea that this is they're trying to they're trying to offer a way out of this that is politically acceptable for Israel. Because if you look at it from that perspective, it's, look, we're we're offering the peace. We're the ones suing for peace. We're coming to you instead of asking Israel to come to Palestine for peace, which would be politically unacceptable for Israel. It's the Palestinians going to Israel for peace and saying, look, we're, we're throwing in the towel. We, we give up. We give in. We've been bombed to smithereens. Please just, just pull the troops back. Right, just pull the troops back, get out of Gaza. We don't want you in Gaza. And here at, we can do this in phases, right? We you don't trust us, we don't trust you. We can do this in phases, right? Forty with a forty-five day ceasefire attached to each phase, right? You'll we'll exchange the women and children first, and the sick and the elderly first. Phase one, phase two, we'll exchange the men. And phase three, we exchange the dead. You know, that, that, that'd be a 135 day ceasefire. If, if we got through all three phases, 135 days, that's like four and a half months, 
four and a half months. That's pretty good. And uh, and again, all things considered, all things considered, this is a pretty decent proposal. Like, because uh, uh, remember, this isn't a final draft, so uh, it's it's just a uh, for a stepping stone to get to peace. Because you can have a, a peace treaty signed on the other side of that, or a, a real formal armistice and end of the conflict afterwards. This is more so let's end the fighting for now. You can build off of that later. <clears throat> and I'm pretty sure if the, the Palestinians asked for a, a, a full cessation of hostilities, like a real armistice, the, the Israelis would have said no immediately. They wouldn't have even had the chance. But by doing it this way, you can at least end the killing, right? And then you can let the diplomats take over after the fact. So for a stepping stone, for a, a sort of preliminary draft, because it's not final, uh, let alone an armistice, th this proposal is pretty solid. It's a pretty good proposal. And again, while all this goes down... The, uh, the death tally is rising, and as of now, more than 27,700 Palestinians have been killed, and at least, and these are the numbers that I was sort of curious about over the course of this war, uh, which is the wounded, because we've only been really counting the deaths, so 27, almost 28,000 Palestinians are dead, but this number that I've seen go with that is that 65,000 at least have been injured. 65,000, 28,000, 65,000 injured, 28,000 dead. That is, if my math serves me correctly, 92,000 deaths. Well, no, not deaths. Well, that, that is, that my math certainly wouldn't be serving me correctly if I said that. But 92,000 casualties. 92,000 casualties with two injured, roughly two injured for every one death in Gaza. And overwhelming, like not even worth debating majorities are a civilian. Like Israel's just not even trying. All this, and with that going on in the background, the genocide case going on in the background, every death and every refused peace deal, every rejected peace deal, is only going to make the case for the South Africans that Israel is not actually out to fight Hamas, they're just out for blood. And again, by rejecting these sensible peace deals, like, tell me where this, this deal is not sensible. As a, as a starter, as a, as a means of opening the dialogue for potentially a lasting peace, but at the very least, you know, stopping the fighting now. Tell me how this deal is unreasonable. What did the Palestinians ask for in this one that is unreasonable? Now, we could we could look back and go, oh, they're just, again, you can take this a number of ways. They didn't want an actual end to the conflict. Whether they just want to regroup, regroup and regather their forces, fair. That's a fair way to look at right i'm i'm not saying that they're not because i don't know that they they very well could be but 
if we're looking at means of ending the fighting, if we're looking at means of uh, uh, realistic means at that, of coming to some sort of agreement where we stop the killing and Israel's able to walk out of this with some kind of victory. Uh, and again, if both, both sides are going to paint this as a victory if they can get it. But Israel's the important one because they're in the driver's seat of this. They're the ones who are doing the bombing. They're the ones who are killing the civilians. And Hamas is on the defense. So, in what way is this unacceptable to the Israelis? In what way is this unacceptable to the Israelis? In what way is this unreasonable? Because those are very two different questions. In what way is it unacceptable? And in what way is it an unreasonable list of things to ask for? Because I'm not seeing it. Now, maybe it's just because my bias has shifted a little bit. My position hasn't. <laughs> I still don't think that this has anything to do with America and we shouldn't be funding Israel's war machine. And if we weren't, this would probably be over by now, to be straight up with you. You know, just all the wonderful things that America behaving like a sovereign country uh, could do for the entire world. But I am not seeing how this is unreasonable. I just don't see it. But the Israelis do, or at the very least Netanyahu sees it as unreasonable, and that's more important than the opinions of some guy in the United States doing a podcast. But I think I, I, I think it's a missed opportunity. I really do think it's a missed opportunity. Just like I, I thought that the last deal he refused was a missed opportunity, I think he's missing opportunities, and all these missed opportunities for peace are going to bite him in the ass in the very end. And like I keep warning, like I keep saying might happen, it might cost the Israelis their statehood. And there might not be an Israel on the other side of this conflict. But we will see. We will see. All right. But so now we'll get into the final topic of today's episode, which is the long awaited. Well, not that long awaited. We, we only found out about what, a week ago that he was maybe planning on doing this. But alas... Tucker Carlson interview with Vladimir Putin has finally dropped. Uh, dropped a few days ago, actually. Uh, I watched it on the TuckerCarlson.com news website, and then he dropped it on YouTube. And I, you know, I felt a little goofy because he did it the day after. But you know, I was ahead of the curve. You know, got most of that interview uh, sort of took my notes on it. You know, I was doing other things the day that it was dropped on YouTube. Uh, I think it's been dropped on X by now. If it's been dropped on YouTube, I, well, I know it's been dropped on X. But alas, the interview is out. Because uh, uh, there was speculation before. There was threats of sanctions and uh, calling him a traitor. Oh, my God, he's a traitor. How could he interview Vladimir Putin? He's a traitor to this nation. And the Europeans are threatening sanctions. Uh, you have people talking about not letting him back into America when he comes on his way home. All this this wave of propaganda to try to paint this man out to be the worst man since Hitler himself, which is incredible, since that's what they were doing to Putin not that long ago. But now, all that muck has been cleared from the air, and the oxygen's been sucked out the room by the interview. And the interview speaks for itself. And everything they said about this man was wrong. Yeah, and I'm 
partially talking about Tucker, and I'm partially talking about Vladimir Putin himself. Uh, and the, the reason that they're so wrong about Vladimir Putin is because they, they just choose to lie about him. And what's fun about this is that now people can see the lies told about Vladimir Putin. Now, I'll be honest, at some point in this interview, Putin doesn't exactly do himself much favors. I mean, there's a part where he talks about shifting the borders around and how he has a Russia has a historic right to Ukraine. And he talks about how Ukrainians and Russians are one and the same, and then they talk about how, well, what about the Poles and the Hungarians and the, the Romanians who live in Western Ukraine? Well, sh if Russia gets to have the Russian parts of Ukraine, well, shouldn't they get the parts of Ukraine that are ethnically theirs? And, you know, Transylvania, because, you know, Transylvania is Hungarian, and then there's Hungary, but Transylvania is part of Romania, and, you know. You know, a valid question. Tucker didn't exactly... This was not a, a softball interview, but Tucker did give Putin the opportunity to speak at length and, you know, really go into his answers. So, what we got, and that was just, a, you know, one example of how Putin didn't do himself much favors because his answers there were sort of, you know, it's it's their decision, but it's like, ha ha, but, but your case is that Ukraine is Russian, therefore you get to have it. Uh, he does elaborate a little bit more on uh, the reasons why he goes into Ukraine. Uh, and it has more to do with broken promises and the expansion of NATO. But, you know, he takes like a good 30 minutes. A good 30, 35 minutes at, this, at the beginning of this interview. Talking about the history of Russia. Right. From 800, from 800 and something AD. So that it was a good, beefy history discussion regarding the history of Russia as a state, and he starts with the Kievan Rus as the beginnings of Russia. And there's, throughout the war, when I'm, I've been looking at, well, especially at the beginning of the war, when you see this commentary and these video, these history videos that sort of capitalize on the, the moment to try to make out the case, oh, you, no, Ukraine isn't Russian, they, they, they've been here this entire time, the Kievan Rus, okay, well, if why was it called the Kievan Rus and not the Kievan Ukraine? It's like, oops. And so that does play to the idea that Russia and Ukraine are one and the same, and to be fair, throughout most of their history, they have been. <laughs> most of their history, they have been. But, and... Putin went out of his way to sort of elaborate on that. And really, really long history lesson, you know, people have memed it and saying, <laughs> Tucker, so why did you go into Ukraine? And then Putin goes, well, you see, at the heat birth of the universe about four billion years ago, <laughs> it, uh, it is a little comical. And it was a bit of a slog to get through, just a bit of a slog, because, you know, it's, I wasn't expecting a 30-minute lecture on Russian history. I, I really wasn't. All right, I, I really wasn't. I know Putin is a man of history, particularly his Russian history. I just wasn't expecting the answer to the question, why did you invade Ukraine, to be a 30-minute lecture, uh, a crash course on Russian history. But alas, that that's how the interview starts. And so I'm, I'm really skipping over that. Uh, but to... It seems, and this is a, an observation made by the Duran and by Tucker himself as well, that this wasn't him trying to get around the question, but him establishing a context 
for the way he views things uh, from the Russian historical perspective. And in that regard, it was perhaps a pretty important thing to sort of include at the very beginning of this interview. But I digress. It did take him a good while to get to the straightforward answer to that question. Why did you invade Ukraine? <clears throat> but alas, he said uh, it ultimately came down when he finally got around to sort of answering it. He basically got around to denazification. And so that was the, the first straightforward answer to that question. The other straightforward answers to that question come towards the end of the interview uh, when he talks about the broken promises of the United States. Um, but at the, we're talking at the beginning of the interview when he finally get when he gets past the the history lecture, which is interesting and unexpected. He goes straight for the 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 elephant in the room denazification, and I'm I, I was partially happy that he brought this up because I I did want to hear him elaborate on this when now that we had the chance to hear him. So he said that Ukraine, upon reaching independence. Went looking through its history for an identity. He said that, and he went. They went looking for national heroes. He talked about how during World War II, Ukrainian nationalists worked with Hitler, people like Stefan Bandera, you know, the, the the national hero of Ukraine these days. How these people became heroes, national heroes, in spite of participating in the Holocaust and atrocities committed against Poles and Jews. And Ukrainians and Russians just killing, just this massive killing spree of hundreds of thousands of people. And these are your national heroes uh, who slaughtered civilians. And it's so he, this is sort of how he opens up, right? That when they got their independence, they went, cert they went through their history in search of a history. It, it, well, actually, that's kind of what he said. They went through their history in search of a history of being Ukrainian. Because throughout most of their history, they're either Russian or they're someone else's. Because, you know, Ukraine wasn't exactly an independent state for most of its history. Most of its history, it was either the Kievan Rus, which is a Ru technically a Russian state, right? But they don't really like to acknowledge that as a Russian state. They were a Mongol protectorate. They were under the governance and jurisdiction of, the Auto of either an Ottoman uh, sultan... Because the Ottomans did reach up to the, the southern shores of the Black Sea at one point. They were under the po Lithuanian horde, the, later the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. They were under the, very, the control of various other, you know, smaller factions until Russia came around and sort of won a war against Poland that took over a lot of Ukraine. And Russia gradually expanded over the rest of Ukraine. And so that, that's, that was his... Uh, again, this is the, the history lesson, but he, he talked about denazification. As Ukraine went looking through its history in search of a history that is Ukrainian instead of Russian or Polish or, you know, whoever else conquered them, they looked to World War II. And in looking at their history during World War II, they found national heroes in literal Nazis. And he used this as an opportunity to bring up how the Canadian Parliament honored a literal Nazi during Zelensky's visit to the country. You know, just not letting that slide, and that's going to be news to a lot of people, uh, Americans watching this interview. Uh, and then Tucker asked him, 
well, how are you going to denazify Ukraine without controlling the whole country? I'm paraphrasing. Uh, and which is, but this is a question that I asked myself, you know, when looking at the war aims right off the bat, when Russia said denazification, demilitarization, uh, and I said it to you guys at the very beginning of this war, I'm like, okay, well, one of those things can't be done. One or both of those things can't be done without having a de facto control over this entire country. At least that's the way I was looking at it from the start. So the only way you could do that from my perspective was to conquer all of Ukraine. The demilitarization of Ukraine is happening in real time with the Russia just grinding them down. And they're demilitarizing all of NATO in the process. So I suppose that's one way you could demilitarize. I, I suppose I just wasn't being uh, creative enough in my thinking. But then, even if you could demilitarize Ukraine by just demolishing their military on the battlefield and sitting there artillery spamming, well, how are you going to denazify Ukraine? That, that was the other question. I'm like, oh, you have to have at least some level of institutional control over Ukraine if you're going to denazify it, because that's an institutional level thing. We, we won't even get into personal ideologies. But Putin's response to this was rather interesting. Because he brought up the, the peace agreements at Istanbul and how they were really close to reaching an agreement. And he brought up how this was going to be a part of the more finalized treaty. They were going to make it, uh, make it a law in Ukraine via treaty. So that once Ukraine signs the law, now they have to enforce denazification. You're not allowed to have Nazis in your parliament. You're not allowed to have Nazis in, in positions of local governance. You know, no, stat, no statues and memorials to Stefan Bandera and his Nazi ilk. No more flying swastikas and SS Thunderbolts and the Wolf's Angle. You know, no more Azov Battalion. No more of that. This was going to be imposed on Ukraine by treaty. And then Ukraine was going to, you know, have to go along with the treaty. And there was probably going to be the threat of a Russian invasion if they didn't follow the treaty. Uh, and, of course, Ukrainian neutrality and not being in... U in um, I almost said Ukraine not being in Ukraine. But... Ukraine not being in NATO was obviously going to be a part of that treaty as well, so it's not like Russia would have had the threat of Ukraine joining NATO in the interim while they were not honoring the treaty, which is another thing that they were afraid of, chronically afraid of, because, you know, Putin goes into how uh, they keep trying to get agreements with western powers right keep trying to get agreements only to be either snuffed or betrayed or stabbed in the back uh, or reneged upon and he he goes into this later on as the interview goes on he sort of he he really he really really has a a, a chip on his shoulder about all the times he's been betrayed and stabbed in the back he's not letting that go and that, that's one thing that i got away from, from this uh interview He's not letting go those betrayals. He, like, a line has been crossed in his mind. And he's just never going to trust us again. He might learn to trust the United States again. And that might be more so due to Trump uh, than anything else. But Europe, I'm, I, I think we've reached a point where he is done dealing with the Europeans. I think that, that I think that that was one of the takeaways I got from this. He's 
he doesn't want to, he almost doesn't even want to look at these people uh but uh, uh, I'll just sort of go back to the the denazification thing denazification was going to be in the treaty along with neutrality and that was how he was going to denazify Ukraine it wasn't that he was going to denazify it it was that Ukraine was going to denazify Ukraine and you know it makes sense. It makes sense. Because this is what I've been asking myself. And I'm like, there's no way you can fight. You can achieve these these aims, these stated war aims, without occupying all of Ukraine. But he's, de- he's demilitarizing them by destroying their military in the battlefield. And the big offensive will come. And the denazification, he says, was going to be in the treaty. Now, we'll see if that's still the plan now because things the situation is a lot different from what it was in 20 early 2022 and in the spring of 2022 when this peace agreement was being hashed out we're in a very different environment now that deal might not be on the table anymore and i I presume because you know demilitarization at that time ukraine still had a large and functioning military I presume the demilitarization, because he didn't say this explicitly, uh, but he, he was talking about denazification. But if denazification was going to be in the treaty, I assume demilitarization was going to be in the treaty as well. And that would also make sense, because demilitarizations have been in treaties before. Look at Germany after World War One, and Germany after World War Two. Look at France after they lost, after they lost to Germany in uh, 1871. They had to reduce the size of their military. For a little bit. They had to ask Germany if they could rebuild their military to go deal with the rebellion in Paris that had broken out as a result of them losing the war. You know, demilitarizations have been in treaties for quite some time. So that would make sense if that was also going to be in the treaty. Although this is me extrapolating because he didn't say that expressly. But that sort of answered my question. Oh, so this is how you were going to do it. Because we didn't know this until now. So I think that was a very interesting piece of information that Tucker managed to squeeze out of Putin. I say squeeze as if he didn't he didn't just sit back and let Putin answer the question, which is also a first because usually someone interrupts him halfway through his his uh, the first two seconds of him speaking. Uh, but yeah, so I thought that was very peculiar, and it was uh, it shed a lot of light onto the specifics. Uh, well. Maybe not the specifics, but the generalities of how exactly they thought that they were going to go about achieving these aims. And it was going to be through the law and the legal process of imposing a treaty onto Ukraine. And remember, that treaty wasn't a bad one. They were going to get security guarantees from Russia, from all the major states in NATO, from Turkey, from China, and potentially even India. And in exchange for them just being neutral and being demilitarized... And being denazified, this was all going to be in the treaty. It was pretty fair deal. The Russians had pulled their troops back from the north as a sign of goodwill. And Putin was stabbed in the back again. again and he makes it a point to complain about this. He pulled the troops back from Kiev because no one can reasonably sign a, a peace treaty with a gun to their head. That's what he said. So he pulled the troops back from Kiev only to have them Boris Johnson come in and sabotage the deal and he named he named drugs Boris Johnson and he 
ridicules that guy and he goes, Boris Johnson comes in, he, he gets them to do all these things and where's Boris Johnson now? No one knows. Oh, uh, you know, just firing shots at Boris Johnson and he's right. <laughs> no one knows where that guy is now. He's, he's served his purpose, so to speak. Um, but yeah. And, and so when, when Tucker asked him, cause when the topic of peace talks got brought up, uh, when Tucker asked him, why hasn't there been peace talks? Putin responded by bringing up the fact that Ukraine has outlawed negotiations with Russia, which is true. They, they literally done that. And if you remember after that, that fake peace summit in Saudi Arabia that they tried to hold where they didn't invite the Russians and then everybody else who showed up to the summit basically told Ukraine, uh, yeah, you're going to have to, you're going to have to throw in the towel here. You're, you've lost. Ukraine went away from that thinking that they were going to, they thought that they were going to get the entire world on their side with their peace plan. The entire world came with other ideas and Ukraine ran away and from that point on said they were never going to negotiate a peace ever again. They, they were just, they were closed on peace talks, if you remember that. But yeah, uh, earlier on in the war, they made it illegal to negotiate peace with the Russians. Of course, this is after the Istanbul talks fell through that were that we were just talking about. So he, Putin brings up this fact, which is you know not really reported on much, even among you know the sources that I listen to, uh, largely because it's taken for granted as a fact. But he brings it up. N Ukraine has outlawed n negotiating peace with me. So how am I going to negotiate peace? And then you know Tucker goes well. Well, why don't you just go to? Why don't you just bypass Ukraine and go to the United States? Because uh, in the process of saying Ukraine is outlawed in negotiations, Putin has essentially pinned the blame for the lack of negotiations on Ukraine's unwillingness to negotiate. So that's a a sort of subtlety of that move right there. Uh, and Putin said that the easiest way to stop the war would be for the U.S. to stop sending weapons. And this is in response to Tucker saying, "Well, why don't you just go to the U.S. directly and say?" By, uh, to the Biden administration, let's sit down, let's hash this out. Putin's like, what's there to talk about? Just, you stop sending weapons, and it'll be over in a few weeks. That's it. And we can agree to some terms. That's what he, that's what uh, Putin said. So then Tucker asked about the threat of World War III, building off the conversation. He said, uh, and he asked Putin, if Putin thinks that NATO fears uh, World War III, Putin's response was that NATO governments were, quote, trying to intimidate their own population with an imaginary Russian threat. He says this is an obvious fact and thinking people, not uh, Philistines, but thinking people, analysts, those who are engaged in real politics, just smart people understand perfectly well that this is a fake. They're trying to fuel the Russian threat, end quote, which is verbatim what they're trying to do. And I've, I've said, as, uh, well, have I said as much? I don't think I've said as much, you know, that, that they're, that they're using this to fuel a threat with Russia. Uh, I think I've more been on the lines of, uh, criticizing people like Tim Pool who keep saying that Russia's going to use a tactical nuclear weapon. It's like, no, they're not. <laughs> they're really not. Uh, like I've been... I suppose that I've sort of just, you know, fallen over there. My position is close to what he's just saying. Because I'm like, Russia is not my problem. They're not my enemy. 
and they, we wouldn't even be fighting them if we didn't go so far out of our way to do so. That's my that's been my position, and he's basically laying out a view of things that says just that. He says just that if NATO doesn't have to fear World War Three, unless they're going to go start a fight with Russia. And but they're using the threat of World War Three. They're using the, this fake Russian threat to, you know, propagandize their own people, and that is true. Because what have we been hearing ever since the war? Oh my God, he's a madman. If we don't fight him in, if we don't fight him in Ukraine, he's gonna go invade Poland, Lithuania, the Baltics, and then and then he's gonna be in Paris. You know, that old tired old bullshit. We've been hearing that nonstop. And, and you, when you read the comments sections of a video that talks about the war, or when you see uh, a video that says that America really shouldn't be involved, there, there's always that one guy, that one ignoramus who thinks he knows something, who look at a comment that says, America doesn't need to be giving money and weapons to other people's countries, we should be looking after ourselves. And then there's, that, there's always that one guy who, who thinks he knows something and goes, yeah, have fun speaking Russian and Chinese. It's like, it's like, it's like these people just don't understand the idea that America has, uh, that this whole being involved thing is new. Don't understand the idea that there's literally no way for Russia and China to get to the United States. But, but we're going to be speaking Russian and French if we, French, we're going to be speaking Russian and Chinese if we don't maintain alliances that aren't doing us any good. It's such ignorance. But it is comical. But alas, Putin is absolutely right here. The the fake Russian threat, because it is fake, because uh, we're we've been the ones agitating the conflict. We've been the ones expanding NATO to Russia's border, constantly. You you can't you can't expand a military alliance designed to fight country X. You can't expand that alliance all the way up to the borders of country X, and then you get mad when country X says, "Hey, well, well hold the fuck on, hey, get get your shit off my border." What are you doing? Get away from me. <laughs> and that's exactly what we did with Russia. How are, we, how are you going to expand a military alliance made for the sole purpose of fighting Russia up to Russia's border and then get mad when the Russians have something to say about that? The Russians aren't the threat here. You're the danger. It, the, and that's true. The, the, the Russian threat is fake. It's the NATO threat that we need to be concerned about. Because NATO not only expanded up to Russia's border, but then tried to instigate a pro... We started a proxy war with Russia. Because we overthrew Ukraine's government in 2014. We've been funding and arming and supplying and training Ukraine for a war with Russia for eight years now. And we're the ones perpetuating this war by continuing to fund Ukraine to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. Russia isn't the threat here, just objectively speaking. Russia's not the threat here. We are. But our governments and the governments of uh, other countries in NATO are using the, the Russian threat to, to propagandize their own people and intimidate their own people for tax money to go to Ukraine. And that is absolutely true. Now, and now Tucker asked him if the threat of expansionist behavior like an invasion of Poland or Latvia uh, was a... Uh, he, if that was something that they should be concerned about, if NATO should be concerned about that f coming from Russia, and Putin responded, only in one case, if Poland attacks Russia. 
because we have no interests in Poland, Latvia, or anywhere else. Why would we do that? We simply don't have any interest. It is merely threat-mongering, end quote. And Putin also mocked the idea of Russia nu- using a tactical nuclear weapon. Because, <laughs> like, if we, if we use nuclear weapons, that's it. That's the end of the world. Why, why would we do that? What interest do we have in starting World War III? And he's absolutely right. Uh, and I thought that was just a, a very a very nice you know piece of this interview, just just finally finally crushing this this narrative that Russia is is out to get everybody. And I, I'm sure a lot of people just aren't going to believe him anyway. But it is nice to at least hear out the mouth of the Russian president. The only way we're going to be at war with you is if you attack us. Which is natural for any leader to say. Uh, although that does raise questions about mercenaries in Ukraine, does that constitute an attack on Russia? If we're do, does funding and arming the country that we're fighting with, that they're fighting with, does that constitute attacking Russia? Because Ukraine is using American weapons and American uh, material and American intelligence to attack Russia, and they've done it directly multiple times. Does that constitute an attack on Russia? If we are ultimately responsible. It, does our argument about Iranian proxies apply to us when Ukraine is our proxy? Now, that's a good question uh, to ask. I don't remember if Tucker asked it. I, don't, I haven't written down a note if he did or not. Cause I, I, I watched it. I, I wrote my notes down, but I might have missed it if he did. But that would be a really good question to ask. <laughs> but alas, uh, Tucker, can, he moves on. He brought up Chuck Schumer, because while they were still on the topic of Ukraine and fighting the war, he brought up how Chuck Schumer was saying, uh, we need to fund Ukraine or else American soldiers would have to fight in Ukraine, you know, because this is in response to the border bill dying in, in real time. He's like, if if we don't get this aid passed, if, if we don't, if the Republicans don't get serious, then we're not going to be able to get money to Ukraine. And if we don't get money to Ukraine, then your soldiers, your sons and your daughters are going to go over there and fight in Ukraine and die. And it's like, well, hold on now. Why exactly would they do that? We're not at war with Russia. And Ukraine is not in NATO. So why would they go over there, Chuck? What are you planning? <laughs> what are you plotting over there, Chuck? Uh, yeah, the, the good old Freudian slip. It's a lovely thing to see in real time. But Tucker brought up Chuck Schumer saying these things, and he asked Putin uh, what he made of statements like that. And Putin said, uh, quote, This is a provocation, and a cheap one at that. I do not understand why American soldiers should fight in Ukraine. <laughs> End quote. Now he talks about how American, Polish, and, and Georgian mercenaries make up the, the top, they round out the top three, uh, you know, uh, the top three nationalities that mercenaries in Ukraine come from, uh, which again raises questions. If we have mercenaries and he's uh, identified them as American, Polish, and Georgian, does that constitute an attack on Russia? Because the only way you're going to invade Poland is if Poland attacks you. Well, is Poland attacking you? good question but uh he he putin goes on to say uh quote if somebody has the desire to send regular troops 
that would certainly bring humanity to the brink of very serious global conflict. That is obvious, end quote. Now, what he says after this is very interesting. Because he then asks, and I'm talking about Putin here, he then asks, quote, do the United States need this? What for? Thousands of miles away from your national territory? Don't you have anything better to do? You have issues on the border, issues with migration, issues with the national debt, more than $33 trillion. You have nothing better to do, so you should fight in Ukraine? Wouldn't it be better to negotiate with Russia, make an agreement already, understanding the situation that is developing today, realizing that Russia will fight for its interest to the end, and realizing this actually return and, and realizing this actually return to common sense start respecting our country and its interests and look for certain solutions it seems to me that this is much smarter and more rational end quote now there's a lot to unpack there because what putin's essentially saying is what i say is that we don't have <laughs> what putin said in a very long and intricate way is what I say very bluntly. We don't have interests in Europe. We don't have interests thousands of miles away from America. And he's that's basically what he said. You don't have interests over here, so why are you over here? You Your country is thousands of miles away from Europe. You, you, why are you over here? What are you doing? You have, a, you have $33 trillion in national debt. You have a border that's wide the fuck open. What are you doing? You what? You you ain't got you ain't got shit else to do. So you're just gonna send troops over here to go fight and die in Ukraine. That that's what you're gonna do. You you don't have anything better to do. Is and and he's not wrong. <coughs> he he's he's definitely not wrong. There is no point in us being over there, and that's been one of the main sticking points in the divide between how people view the war in Ukraine, people who want to be over there and who think it's a good idea, and people who don't. And the people who don't think it's a good idea have been gradually winning the of winning the conversation since the war began. Don't you have anything better to do? It's disrespectful. I mean, <laughs> it is disrespectful, but it's it's blunt and honest. It's like don't you have anything better to do? I mean, shit, that, that's what I would say, and that's what I do say, when I'm playing a strategy game, and then some bum, like, I'm expanding in a territory, like, it's wide open territory, no one's near me, like, I, I finally catch a fucking break, right, and then some bum, from across the map, sends a fucking settler over to my, con- I'm like, get away from me, <laughs> I, that that's ex- that's the way he's sort of expressing here. <laughs> it, it, oh my God! I just realized the parallels between how NATO's been treating Russia and how the AI and Civ behave. If you've ever played Civilization Five, you'll probably know what I mean. When when you're you're building up your base, right, and, and you and you you haven't expanded much, but someone else forward settles you like they send a settler from 3,000 miles away and they settle right on your border and then they complain that you're being too expansive I'm like if you don't get the fool that, that's that's what he's saying 
That's what he's saying. NATO is that bastard who comes from across the map, settles a city right next to you in a, a shitty location, but now you're you're blocked from settling where you want to settle. That that's what NATO does to Russia, and then NATO sits there and sends them a diplomatic message saying, "Hey, you're being too expansive and aggressive. You need to stop." And it's like, "Well, hold the fuck up. You you expanded to me. <laughs> what are you talking about?" That's what this sounds like to me. Now that it, it just dawned on me that that's exactly, <laughs> I, that's exactly what this is. <laughs> it's like you you send troops to my border, but I'm the one who's being aggressive and I need to calm down. It's like get away from me. What are you doing over here? Go back to where you came from. Now Putin's much better than me because if it was me, I would have started the war on him. But then again, that's a strategy game, not real life. Ha <laughs> ha. But he's not wrong. And and that's the takeaway from a lot of this interview. A lot of the interview. Not all of it, but a lot of the interview is that this he's not wrong. Do we we don't don't we have better things to do than to go fight a war with Russia and Ukraine? Is it not better to make an agreement with Russia? Now, he's also sort of sort of, you know, sliding in sliding in the possibility that, you know, you, you could reach an agreement with Russia. It's, a, it's, not, it's not like I want you to or anything, you know. <laughs> but, you know, if, if, if you did, and if you were down for that, that'd be cool. You know, you know, just sliding in the possibility that we could do that and that it's an option. And with it being an option, people are probably going to take them up on that op- option. Or pressure will be applied to take that option, especially as Ukraine dies. Uh, which is, we're only months away from watching that happen in real time. Uh, again, he's right. And and it would be common sense to come to an agreement with Russia. Because why do we have to fight Russia and Ukraine? Like, even if we say that alliances are just that important for us. Ukraine's not an ally, so what are we doing? What are we doing spending hundreds of billions of dollars, sending hundreds of billions of dollars worth of aid to Ukraine? What are we doing? This is Russia's neighborhood. If someone did this to us, we'd slaughter everything in sight. So, of course, they're going to slaughter everything in sight. As a matter of fact, the Russians have been rather restrained. Of course, it makes more sense to take the deal. Now, there here comes the politics. Oh, we're not going to give Putin a win. We're not going to give Putin a win. But I, I found it very interesting that he slipped that in there. Because, you know, it hint, it's hinting. You know, it's, a, it's a, an extended hand, if you will. Now, who will take, who will take that hand and shake it? Who knows? Probably Trump. But the offer is there. He's put it on the table. And and it's also sort of a, an interesting parallel to make between all the talk of how we... Because at the beginning of the war, you had a lot of conservatives saying that we don't need to be at war with Russia. Russia's not the real enemy. China is the real enemy. We we China and Russia are not natural allies. They're they actually hate each other. And we can if we had an alliance with Russia, we could ally with them against China because China's the the real enemy, not just to us but be, to but to Russia and they hate Russia. And and Russia hates China. And Tucker Carlson does get into that a little bit uh, later on. But I just find it interesting that that there was this idea early on in the war that we were going that we should, because, you know, the conservatives weren't exactly the ones running the show here, this idea that we should ally with Russia against China. And I've gone over why that is so blatantly unrealistic, because why would they ever ally with you? <laughs> even if even if we assume that they hate China, they hate you more, which is why they're allied with China to begin with. 
<clears throat> but I digress. This idea that we were going to uh, sort of cause a split, a Sino-Soviet split, another one, between Russia and China, and then play Russia off against China you know, in this grand chessboard move. And I'm like, well, okay, they just got together. You're not going to tear them apart two seconds later. Now, you're, you're going to have to sit there and wait for a few decades at least because uh, that's what we had to do the first time they did. The first time the, the Sinos and the Soviets got together. Uh, of course, Russia's not Soviet anymore, but, you know, it's it's easier than saying Russo. It, it rolls off the tongue better. But uh, that was the talk at the beginning of the war. Now you have Putin sort of reversing the dynamic, not just with the sanctions backfiring and all the economic warfare against Russia backfiring, but now even this idea of, you know, splitting up uh, Russia from China and playing Russia off against China, you know, he's like a judo, like a, a judo fighter, sort of taking that energy and flipped it on us. Now it's him trying to split the United States and Europe, which would be actually be doing us a favor, quite frankly, saying, why do you need to be over here? You're thousands of miles away. You don't, you don't need, you don't need to fight in Ukraine. What are you doing? Well, come make an agreement with Russia. Come on, yeah, that's what you really want. Yeah, yeah, that's what you really want. Come get a deal with Russia. Yeah, we'll treat you right. You know, look at him try to court America. <laughs> I'm well in the mood to be courted. America's a very fine lady. I feel very fine. <laughs> but I find it very interesting that he's sort of turned that, that we're going to peel them off. From their from their alliance and ally them against the the, the, the real enemy. You know? He's taken that and put it to work against us, and now we're the ones being courted instead of the Russians. <clears throat> Again, he'd be doing us a favor, but alas, uh, Tucker, he brought up mm, uh, oh that I already got to that. So oh, Tucker asked him point blank later on in the interview. Uh, who blew up Nord Stream? <laughs> and Putin left. He's like, it was you. Uh, but yeah, then he goes, you personally may have an alibi. He goes, he says, Putin says this to Tucker. You personally may have an alibi, but the CIA has no such alibi. Name dropping the CIA. Straight up. And Tucker asked if he had evidence that the CIA did it. And he asked, if you have this evidence, well, why don't you release it? And Putin said, uh, uh, what, let me, I'll, I'll try to find one. All right. Putin said, because <laughs> uh, Tucker talked about, why don't you release the, the evidence and, you know, get like a, a propaganda victory. Putin's like, no one can beat the United States in a propaganda war because the United States control the world's media. And at a certain point, it just isn't worth it. Because even if we showed you what happened, how it happened, and how we know that it happened, no one would believe us. And to a certain extent, he is correct. Now, I'm, I'm certain that people outside of Europe and the United States would believe him, but the relevant parties to this conflict would be stuck in the U.S. web of propaganda and thus would not believe him, so it would, it, there's not much of a benefit to doing that. Uh, and plus, he also says this, everyone already knows who did it. So there's, there's really no point in releasing that evidence. Everyone already knows who did it. And, the, and he says, look to who has the interest and look to who has the capability. 
and of course uh, we said that as well back in like the what, the autumn of 2022 when Nord Stream was blown up well there's only one country well two in the region who have the capability to do it well there's only one with the intention as a matter of fact that one has stated repeatedly that it would blow it up and that one was the United States but well, we're supposed to believe it was the United States <clears throat> but alas uh, Putin went on to talk about how Germany doesn't act in its own interest, and he names m- multiple gas pipelines that are still functional, yet decidedly not operational. Uh, one of them being uh, one of the Nord Stream pipelines that was intact from the explosions, that is not being used. He talked about the pipeline that runs through Poland, uh, that is not being used. He talked about the two pipelines that run through Ukraine, that are not being used. All these pipelines that could supply Germany with, with gas that are not being used. And he goes, the Germans have the leverage to make that happen. They could, Nord Stream, they can open unilaterally because it goes straight from Russia to Germany. The Poland pipeline, well, Poland, he goes, Poland gets a lot of funds from the EU. Germany's the main contributor to these funds. They can essentially force the issue to get Poland to open up that pipeline. And then there's Ukraine. He goes, Germany's one of the largest contributors after the United States. Therefore, they also have leverage over Ukraine to tell the Ukrainians to open up these pipelines. We, we subsidize you. The least you could do is let us have a decent living. And I was not aware that all of these pipelines... Well, actually, I was. I just didn't really think about it. Because we were all focused on Nord Stream. But I, I didn't think about the three other pipelines... And now that he's brought it up, I'm thinking, wow, there really shouldn't be an energy crisis in Germany right now with all of these pipelines that run through them. Because I've seen the maps of these pipelines and I I knew that they were there. I just forgot. And now that he's this interview, I've been it's been brought back to my attention that these pipelines are there. And it's like, hold on. Nord Stream isn't the reason Germany's dying in an energy crisis. It's the fact that all these other pipelines aren't aren't having the gas flow, and they're trying to. And I, and I wonder who could be re- re- behind all that. This it's a coordinated effort to destroy Germany. I tell you. Uh, and you know there was all this talk about how the United States and all these other countries were going to come in with liquefied natural gas, which is more expensive because you have to f- basically freeze the natural gas until it turns to a liquid. They have to ship it by container, a specialized container, and then the the container can only land at a specialized terminal that can, you know, process that. It's like, that is a lot. A a lot more than just a pipeline. (laughs) Uh, No wonder it's more expensive. And Germany's been deindustrializing as a result of this, but you have four pipelines that are still functional, but they're not being operated. Why? Like I can understand the Ukrainian ones; they're in the war. But you, you could take that risk if you're gonna, if if you're gonna take any risk, you could at least take that one. But the Russians haven't bombed it either. So at this point in the game, you definitely know that it's something you should look into, because the Russians could have destroyed the pipelines if they wanted to. Like if we're gonna if we're gonna assume that Russia was behind the Nord Stream attack, well, they're at war with Ukraine. If they if they bombed the pipeline under the water in Nord Stream, 
why wouldn't they bomb the two pipelines that run from Russia through Ukraine? Why wouldn't they do that? Oops. That destroys the whole narrative. Uh, but I'll, I'll digress. Doing a whole lot of digressing today. Maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll progress instead of digress. Let, let's progress, shall we? <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, he goes on about how Germany doesn't act in its own interests. Uh, case in point, the pipelines. And Tucker, he talks about how the world is being broken up into two different blocks. And talks about how one block has cheap energy and the other doesn't. And I take serious issue with that because um, I'm an American. Uh, my energy prices are not dependent on Europe, and they're, they're not dependent on a Russian pipeline to Germany. They're, they're, they're dependent on how much oil we're extracting out of the ground here in the United States. It's just, a, just a, yeah, it's the, one of the problems that comes with lumping in the United States with the West and assuming that all of Europe's problems are also America's problems. Uh, no, no, it's it's really not. And this 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 endless comparison between the two. Uh, well, not comparison, conflation of the two it leads to rather odd statements like that, where America is the largest oil producer on the planet, but we're uh, the block that has high energy prices, even though Americans could easily have low energy prices because we produce oil. The Europeans don't do that. We produce natural gas. The Europeans, by and large, don't do that. Norway does, but Russia does, but the European, the Netherlands can... But the Europeans don't produce energy. They're not energy exporters. What the United States is. They don't have the riches and minerals like the United States has. The United States does. <laughs> There's a big difference. We are not the same. And this conflation with the West, because it, it just doesn't make sense precisely because of the, the vast differences between America and European countries. We are not the same. We, it, and that's just, is a, it gets really strange. I'll just say that. It, the, when you keep trying to conflate these two vastly different places on the planet to one another as though they were one and the same without acknowledging the differences between the two, uh, well, I, you can't acknowledge it, the difference between the two. Because when you try to conflate them as being one and the same, the West, well, the differences in that term between the two, you know, continents represented in that term, Europe and North America. The differences are so stark that you'd have to specify them every time you brought it up. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. So that the, my little tangent there, you know, you know, just had to put it in there. Talk about Tucker talked about how the world's being broken up into two hemispheres. And Putin said, the brain is broken up into two hemispheres, but the two sides need the other to function properly, and the two sides can work together to get a, a, a healthy person. And he says the world is very unhealthy right now. That's an ailment, because one half of the brain is trying to fight the other half. It's a very sick ailment, and he says that good press and honest journalism can help uh, mend that divide. And that is true. And Tucker is thankfully part of that solution. And I, I hope that I am as well. But, you know, I'm not interviewing Putin. <laughs> but I do get to talk about it. So we'll, we'll do that. And Putin, uh, Tucker also talked about the position of the dollar and the impact that sanctions have had on Russia and 
how Putin views the position of the dollar moving forward. And Putin said that using the dollar as a tool of foreign policy and as a tool of, you know, uh, strength, as a tool of, uh, as a weapon, really is what he meant. It was the worst, the biggest strategic mistake the United States has made because in doing so, it has incentivized other countries to stop using the dollar for their transactions. And in the process of these countries moving away from the dollar for their own security, because everything you do against Russia, weaponizing the dollar against Russia, everything you do against Russia, everything you do against Iran, is just one more thing that other countries have to be afraid of you doing to them. And no one wants to live in that fear, so they're going to move away from the dollar. And that weakens the dollar. And it weakens America's ability to impose our will on other countries using the dollar. So, while it might end up being a good thing for everybody in the end that this power is being taken away from us, strategically, it was a pretty stupid move. And he, and he says as much. Now, uh, Tucker asked, uh, in line with this series of questions, Tucker asked if the BRICS was in danger of being dominated by China in a way that endangered the sovereignty of his members because he goes well if the united states isn't there well you might be replacing one colonial power for another and he's referring to china and putin said that this is another boogeyman story that's what he said he he, he then talked about how russia has been neighbors with china for centuries and they've they've gotten along for most of that history because china and he attributes this to china having different uh, ambitions uh, and not having the desire to conquer russian land uh, and really not having the desire to conquer land beyond China itself, which has historically been the case, and so far remains true. <laughs> uh, unless you unless you dispute the idea that Taiwan is not ch uh, is Chinese. If you dispute that idea, then I suppose. <laughs> but China does really like expanding its borders beyond what you see today. Which is why the borders are what you see today and roughly always reach this point throughout Chinese history. Uh, particularly whenever they're able to conquer Tibet and the, the northern steppes and Manchuria. They do. But when they don't, it, China's borders look the same throughout history. So it's, it's a rational conclusion to come to that they don't like going beyond their own borders. What they consider to be China. And this is part of the reason why Putin doesn't fear that China's going to try to colonize Russia, because China hasn't, even though they've had the ability to. I mean, let's not forget that China had a population in the hundreds of millions back when China and Russia first met, when Russia was expanding to the Pacific. They could have colonized Russian lands if they wanted to, at any moment, actually. Uh, even now they could, but they choose not to. They choose to respect that border, and they've respected that border more or less for the, their entire history. They, they fought a number of border skirmishes, Russia and China, but overall, this is a relationship that's been pretty steady and pretty stable throughout history and beyond ideologies. So that's where Putin is coming from, and he sort of explains that, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, he's not afraid of that, and he's... Uh, and he says the Chinese ultimately want to do business and work with you on the basis of shared interests and he he also goes on a, a 
Tucker asked Putin if he believed another administration would be better and easier for Russia to work with. Um, and he asked if the president really makes the decisions. Putin went on a tangent, but ultimately alluded to the idea that they don't make the decisions. And he and this is while he was going into how every time he was been sort of betrayed and stabbed in the back by the United States and NATO. And he goes, well, the president says one thing and then the, the men in the black suits say another. And then the, these sharp changes in policy. There's talk. Uh, he asked if Putin, if Russia could join NATO. Uh, and they they said we'd we'd get back to you on that, and you know, then they they said never. <laughs> and so Putin, this is a sort of a me paraphrasing because there wasn't much specific about this the part of the interview towards the end. Uh, it was just him really just venting, is if how I could uh, describe this. It's really just Putin venting about all the times he's been betrayed by the United States. And why the situation between Russia and the United States is what it is. And it it takes knowing the history to understand why. Not just looking at uh, 2022. You have to look at the history and that, then you understand why things are the way they are. Cause thing, and he says himself that things shouldn't be this way. Russia had, and the United States had no reason to be hostile to each other after the end of the Cold War. But that was a missed opportunity. And that it is what it is. So that that's sort of if I could um, sort of summarize that twenty or so minute period of the interview, uh, that's how I would put it. Now, it, Tucker ends the interview, asking if Putin would be willing to release Evan Gershkovich, a journalist from the Wall Street Journal, uh, who. Uh, really, he asked that Putin would release uh, Evan as a show of decency and goodwill and if he would allow Evan to go home to the United States with Tucker and his crew really good really honorable that he would do that and Putin says Putin refused just flat out he refused and he said that Russia's done enough gestures of goodwill and because none of these gestures have been reciprocated, Gershkovich's release is simply going to have to be done as a part of a, a formal exchange where the United States is going to have to give Russia somebody in exchange for him. And it was a little sad to hear that, you know. You, this the, It could have been a, a feel-good moment of the interview, you know. Could you could you please give us our citizen back? And he's like, yeah, okay. And then, you know, they, they come home and they do the victory lap with this guy. But... In a way, it was also probably important that Putin didn't send this guy home with Tucker. Now, I do hope that Evan comes home, right? I was unaware that he was imprisoned in Russia. But in a way, it probably... The shock to the system of Putin saying no is probably needed for the watchers and the viewers of the interview because our past actions... And our incessant, our uh, our government's insistence on having bad blood with Russia is in no small part to blame for Tucker not being able to bring our citizen home. And so it's it's a little sad to hear, but at the same time, it's it's real that that bad blood, that frustration is there, and it's. A sign that we can work things out, 
but it's just going to take time to do so. Time, work, sweat, blood, and tears. And then the interview ends. And this wonderful moment in history came to a close. A very good interview overall. I don't have too much to complain about. Uh, Putin gave his thoughts, and Tucker let Putin speak. Tucker asked some hard-hitting questions. He, it, wasn't, it wasn't a softball interview. And uh, aside from a handful of questions that I, prob- I, if I had the opportunity, might have asked, you know, if, if I, in hindsight, could have gone back and asked one or two more things, you know, we, we can all piggyback off of that and, you know, say that. But for an interview that he's, you know, is one of a kind, Tucker did a really good job. And this is a really good interview. And Putin came to this as a serious uh, interviewee answer the question seriously and Tucker let him answer in full before giving his responses and his rebuttals he pushed back here and there uh, to you know get a little bit more out of Putin at times really good interview really good interview uh, definitely worth the hype you know definitely worth the hype and I'm happy that I get to report on it and you know just cover it with you guys but alas uh, lots of lessons can be taken from that uh, particularly the lesson, well, the the message that Putin himself tried to push across, which is that the the gap can be mended, the divide can be bridged. It's just going to take time, and that trust has to be rebuilt because it's been so thoroughly destroyed over time. But with time, all wounds can heal, which is something that he said about Russians and Ukrainians. When the war is over, he believed that the, the wounds will heal, And overall, I think that that was his message about Russia and the West, uh, particularly the United States and Germany as well. With time, with work, with effort, the trust can be repaired and the wounds can be healed. And we can function together, cooperating together, instead of being enemies working against one another. And that's a pretty hopeful message. Uh, Or maybe I'm just being hopeful. But alas, that is all I have for you today, my lovely listeners. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Oh, the world is changing, folks. The world is changing. But no matter how that change happens, we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday... Servus.